Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. The story of a woman whose ambition and accomplishments far exceeded the expectations of her time, 18 Tiny Deaths, follows the transformation of a young wealthy socialite into the mother of modern forensics. Frances Glessner Lee, born a socialite to a wealthy and influential Chicago family in the 1870s, was never meant to have a career, let alone one steeped in death and depravity. Yet she developed a fascination with the investigation of violent crimes and made it her life's work. Best known for creating the nutshell studies of unexplained death, a series of dollhouses that appear charming until you notice the macabre little details, an overturned chair or a blood-spattered comforter. And then, of course, there are the bodies, splayed out on the floor, draped over chairs, clothed in garments that Lee lovingly knit with sewing pins. 18 Tiny Deaths by official biographer Bruce Goldfarb delves into Lee's journey from grandmother without a college degree to leading the scientific investigation of unexpected death out of the dark confines of centuries-old techniques and into the light of the modern day. Lee developed a system that used the nutshells dioramas to train law enforcement officers to investigate violent crimes, and her methods are still used today. 18 Tiny Deaths transports the reader back in time and tells the story of how one woman, who should never have been allowed into the classroom she ended up teaching in, changed the face of science forever. The book they're featuring this evening is 18 Tiny Deaths, the untold story of Francis Glessner Lee and the invention of modern forensics. With my special guest journalist and author, Bruce Goldfarb. Welcome to the program and thank you very much for this interview. Bruce Goldfarb. Hi, Dan. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. This is an incredible story, and I'm sure the audience is going to love it. Let's, um, I know this isn't really the order, but let's go to 2012, and there's 12 or more editors, as you write, touring the state of Maryland's state-of-the-art forensic medical center in Baltimore. And you were all working at a organization um, of a bunch of news sites that were owned then right. by AOL Huffington Post. Tell us about the circumstances in which you came to experience in 2012, the nutshell, studies of unexplained death. Tell us about this whole experience and what it led to and how you came to be the author of 18 Tiny Deaths. Well, I, uh, as you say, I had been for many years committing journalism. Um, I had actually written about the nutshells many years ago in 1992. So I had a familiarity with the medical examiner's office and had visited several times. But it was in 2012 
when I was uh, writing for Patch, uh, these hyperlocal uh, news sites, and there was a gentleman in my community that I covered who worked at the medical examiner's office. He was the director of IT uh, named uh, Mike Eagle, and he's a very interesting fellow and uh, a firefighter, ex-military, uh, a paramedic, and I just sort of, you know, had... Uh, uh, we, I, I just, uh, we sort of developed this friendly relationship, and uh, I asked Mike to. Uh, the, the state of Maryland had just built; it was completed in 2010. This brand new, really state-of-the-art, futuristic forensic medical center, and um, I asked Mike to arrange for a tour for us. And so uh, we did, and we looked around, and they had this gorgeous. Uh, the brightly lit autopsy suites and the whole biosafety suite and the laboratories. And we saw the, uh, we were in the training facility for forensic investigators that was donated by Patricia Cornwell, the novelist. And this is basically a studio apartment uh, where death scenes are staged for training purposes. And he happened to mention, oh, by the way, we have this position that we're trying to fill uh, looking for an executive assistant for the chief who would be a public information officer. And um, they're, they're looking for somebody with a with some medical uh, experience, preferably a media background uh, who, uh, you know, was uh, uh, comfortable uh, dealing with, uh, you know, law enforcement, government officials, the public, and these sorts of things. And it honestly sounded uh, written for me. Um, I couldn't think of anybody else who was more suited for that kind of thing. And so uh, I applied, and it, it did take a while. The state has quite a hiring system, but um, I got the job. And so um, I, it, it was just um, I, it, just having the opportunity to be in the building where the nutshells were located was an absolute thrill. Uh, but mm -hmm. uh, I, I became friends with uh, Jerry D. Um, uh, Jerry D. Chahowitz, who is the uh, uh, the fellow who keeps the the keeper of the nutshell secrets, and he right. basically asked me to, you know, you can take care of them now. You this is your problem. You can change the light bulbs. You can deal with it. Um, that would be great. So I did, and um, I. Uh, collected documents and photos. They're just, um, it was extraordinary and had the opportunity to really look at them very closely like I never had before inside the cabinets and examine them and those sorts of things. So it really gave me an opportunity to uh, gain a you know, deeper appreciation for them. And also uh, through the, the job, um, uh, I, I met the uh, uh, Francis Lesnar Lee's family, her descendants, great-grandchildren, uh, and uh, great-nieces and nephews and these sorts of things. They would come and visit. Um, and I, uh, most importantly, I met uh, William Tyre, who is the director and curator of the Glesner House in Chicago, which is now a museum. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, people would they visit. Um, they're, they're just uh, fascinated by the nutshells. And they would ask, you know, well, you know, is there a biography? How can I learn about her? Um, and, and there wasn't one. And um, so, you know, Bill and I had talked about how unfortunate it was that there's so much misinformation about her um, online and in print. 
And so it became really obvious that somebody would have to write a biography. It hadn't been done. And I was in a position, I sort of had a bigger picture, uh, not only, you know, had a sense of who she was, but how she fit into um, the whole issue of um, a forensic death investigation. So um, that's how I got pushed in that direction. As you write in the book, and this is very important, obviously, let's go back in history to the and explain the coroner system itself that was and in its origins and its uh, practical application in the United States. Take us back. Well, the, the coroner system, uh, the coroner, the sheriff, the constable, and the justice of the peace these are all officials that are actually holdovers from the Middle Ages. They date from the medieval England, the 1200s, 1300s. And the coroner in particular um, was, uh, he was the, the royal, the, the judicial officer, judicial, judicial representative for the crown, the monarchy. And so his main uh, responsibility was to collect um things that were owed to the crown. Um, the, the, he was first called a, a crowner, which ended up getting corrupted into coroner. Uh, but that's what he was. He represented the crown. And so they did things like uh, investigated shipwrecks um, and uh, treasure troves. Uh, they seized royal fishes. Um, and they also happened to investigate um, deaths, um, mainly to see if it were... Um, if it was a homicide or a suicide, because there are a number of penalties and fines. There was uh, uh, just a whole wacky system of penalties um, that uh, were um, uh, uh, that they had to pay for various things, such as um, it, when a body was found, uh, it had to be accompanied at all times. Um, if, you, if you didn't stay with the body, uh, there was a fine for that. Um, and you couldn't move the body, you couldn't bury it. Now, back in these days, it wasn't uncommon for it to take days or maybe even weeks for a coroner to actually show up, and that and the body had they had to view the body where it was. So it was, you know, understandably quite tempting to perhaps bury it or you know cover it with leaves and things. If you buried the body, there's a fine for that too. So um, if it turned out that the person had taken their own life. Um, uh, suicide was a crime against the crown. Um, and so um, you sacrifice, they would confiscate all your property and all your belongings and, and that. So, uh, and, and that's what they did. Um, so it wasn't, um, the coroner doesn't have to have any medical training, doesn't have to have any um, background in law or anything like that. Um, they would do things by impaneling a coroner's inquest and having people vote on whether it was a an accident, homicide, act of God, or or whatever. You would also you also write that the jurors would be forced to be at that crime scene or at a crime scene to observe the body. And as you write, there's that's problematic in in and itself in terms of crime solving. As you it is, and back in the day, of course, the inquest jury were whoever was locally there at hand. Um, any adult male was eligible to sit on an inquest jury 
back in the day, uh, an adult male was uh, age 12 or older. So, you know, many of these people, um, they may have been neighbors. They could, they could have been witnesses. They could have been related to the decedent. Um, and so, um, uh, and, and of course, uh, these are, for the most part, uh, illiterate uh, farmers uh, with no particular training. And so um, they were, there was a requirement. Uh, it's called the uh, uh, supervisium corporis or corporis. Uh, they were required to, upon view of the body, they were required to look at the body, really examine it and look for wounds and these sorts of things. Um, but, you know, absence any sort of medical training, um, there's really not too much that a person, uh, you know, an untrained person can tell just by looking at a, a, at a dead body. So, um, you know, it's, it's not, uh, it leaves a lot to be desired. You write about 1944 and you offer a, st- a statistic, 1.4 Americans died in 1944. And you say one in five were unexpected and sudden deaths. And of these, a small fraction, one or 2% were investigated by qualified medical examiners. Doctors, again, as, as you say, with specialized training to determine cause and manner of death. At the time, only a few places like Boston, New York, Baltimore, and Newark had competent medical examiners. Tell us what the state of the system, the coroner system, meant in practical terms in 1944 in most of the U.S.? For most of the American history, uh, the the United States was on the coroner system. Um, when the North America was colonized by the Europeans, they brought over English common law with them. So we were in the coroner system uh, since the colonial days. Uh, and uh, up until the first medical examiner was in Boston in um, 1877, uh, there was very, very little progress from 1877 up until, you know, the 1930s, so uh, 1940s. So, uh, you know, for a long, long time, progress was very, very painfully slow. Uh, and the coroner system, um, it really is, unfortunately, uh, you know, it's really set up for um, corruption, um, bribery, kickbacks, um uh, incompetence, uh, indifference, uh, the coroners were often there, and in some places they still are, elected to office, they're politicians, uh, and they run for office, or they're appointed by political people. So the qualifications for the job really had more to do with your political loyalties and affiliations rather than competence um, or dedication to the job or proficiency or those sorts of things. So, um, uh, that was true for most of the country. Now, you know, there were no doubt um, very good, well-intended, uh, uh, decent uh, uh, men of good intentions serving as coroners, doing the best they could, but they didn't have any particular uh, training in, in what we would consider forensic science. So, um, you know, uh, uh, but it still was a unscientific, um, less than satisfactory way of something as serious as determining the the cause of somebody's death really merits. 
as you write, let's talk about Frances Glessner Lee, her parents, the influence of her parents, her father and her mother, and um, the unusual or non-typical uh, childhood that she had and when she uh, first thought she had a, a passion for medicine. She was, uh, Francis was, uh, her parents, uh, John Jacob Glesner and her mother, Francis Macbeth Glesner. Uh, John Jacob um, owned a piece of, uh, he was in the agricultural machinery business, uh, owned a company that was a part, that became part of International Harvester and uh, really pretty fabulously wealthy uh, by by any standard. And so, um, they they had two children. Frances uh, was born in 1877. Uh, her older brother George uh, was seven years older. He was born uh, just days before the Chicago, Chicago fire. Uh, and so um, they were homeschooled. Uh, and uh, the Glesners had the means to afford the finest uh, instructors that they could find. And their children were trained in music and art and dance and the classics and uh, languages and uh, literature and, um, you know, the natural sciences. And uh, they, they both played instruments and horseback uh, riding lessons and dance lessons and uh, all these things. And so by the time that they reached uh, the age of majority, uh, by the time they reached adulthood, they had been provided an education that far, far exceeded anything in any that would be provided in the high school. Um, Frances uh, didn't go beyond that. She ended up uh, getting married at age uh, uh, 19, uh, 20 years old, and, um, you know, was headed towards the life of a uh, of a uh, you know, a, a upper middle class, a wealthy wife. Uh, her brother went to Harvard uh, Medical School. And I, I'm sorry, he didn't go to Harvard Medical School. He was actually in the business school. He, but he went to Harvard and he met uh, this uh, a friend who was a medical student, uh, George Burgess McGrath. Um, and, and she had had, um, even as a child, um, she'd had an interest in, in medicine. She had a really rather harrowing experience having her tonsils removed when she was a young child. Um, and that sort of piqued her interest in, um, in, in, in medical care. She uh, went with her doctor, the country doctor, up in New Hampshire and his rounds, uh, attending to people and those sorts of things. And um, uh, so she really didn't have an opportunity to uh, act on these things in, until much later in life. There, there is a story that you read online that, um, that she was forbidden from going to college by her parents and these sorts of things, which is absolutely not true. Um, there, there was only one place that she wanted to go to school, uh, and that was Harvard Medical School, that she would have. It was Harvard or nothing. They were a Harvard family. Uh, and uh, her husband went there, Bluetly, and her brother went to Harvard, and uh, George McGrath went to Harvard, and even H.H. H. Richardson, who was the architect of their uh, Chicago home. He was a Harvard guy. So uh, they were a Harvard family and Harvard did not admit women until 1945. So that was out of the question. So um, she missed her chance. She was married, as you, as you say, to this Blewett Lee, but 
she tired of the marriage or it didn't work out in her mind and was unfulfilling as you as you write and so that led her to uh indulge we'll say or explore her artistic passions and interests uh, the family was very interested in art but especially interested in music and the symphony in chicago uh tell us um what she does in terms of the interest in those regards well, her mother, Frances Macbeth, was an, an amazing, remarkable woman. She was a silversmith. She was a very talented seamstress. And uh, she taught Frances from uh, the earliest childhood in all sorts of uh, needlework, um, sewing, knitting, crochet, um, and, and these sorts of things. Uh, and so uh, it was like second nature to her. The whole family, uh, Francis, what you as she's, what she was, you know, she made her own clothes uh, and these sorts of things. As an adult, uh, she made her her ch- clothes for her children, and um, they were um, very. Uh, uh, they were uh, uh, donated to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. They were. Uh, big fans of the of the uh, cultural arts and particular particularly the, the symphonic music, and so um, uh, they uh, they went to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra uh, a lot, and they had personal relationships with the conductor and many musicians, and they often had the entire orchestra to their home for dinner and these sorts of things, and so um, uh, sort of on a whim, um, her her mother had remarked, you know, how wonderful would it be just to have the orchestra here, you know, all the time in the house. And so that uh, got Francis uh, to thinking to recreate the entire Chicago Symphony Orchestra uh, in miniature. She did, um, um, uh, there were 90 figures, um, all in the scale of one inch to one foot, and she made the clothing, uh, evening, uh, evening dress with a little carnation in the lapel and the musical instruments. Um, some were, some were fabricated, some were acquired, uh, a, a little small harp was made for her by a harp company along with a little case for it and everything. Uh, and this thing ended up being, um, eight feet long. She had a carpenter create a, uh, a raised uh, podium, a stair step podium like that. Uh, and, uh, she did this entire thing, the 90 pieces in 90 days, that was three months of work. Um, so, um, a year or so later, she did a quartet, uh, the Flanzeli Quartet, uh, which was a, a huge deal. They were sort of the Foo Fighters of uh, string quartets of the day. Uh, and she did those four pieces in the same scale. And so this was, um, you know, this was part of her background. This is what people did. Miniatures were much more of a thing. Her neighbor, she had a neighbor and a friend. Uh, you or our listeners may be familiar with Narcissa Thorne, the Thorn Rooms that are these well-known miniatures that are on exhibit at the Art Institute of Chicago. And uh, Francis Glesner Lee and Narcissa Thorne were friends and neighbors and uh, contemporaries, uh, but dollhouses and miniatures were much more of a thing. They're quite popular today, but it was much more common back then. Now, you write about her obsession to detail, and that's going to be important to everything that she does is that a need to have incredible detail and control, and she's very, very persistent and very, very energetic in her pursuits. Tell us how she comes to know, or brother meets George McGrath, as you write, her brother George. 
Well, tell us how she comes to find out more about what McGrath is all about and what he's interested in and what their relationship develops in, into from that point. It's really very quite interesting uh, because, you know, she had, as you said, she had been married for a while. It didn't stick. It was not a happy marriage and they separated or they divorced. Uh, and, um, she was sort of looking for something to do. Um, in World War One, she volunteered uh, with a uh, a home in a settlement home in Boston for uh, soldiers returning from World War One, um, and she had the sense of you know public public service. She said that um, she felt that she had been born with a silver spoon in her mouth, and she she'd never had to uh, work a, a day in her life for what she had, and she felt some a need to do something um, to, for others to justify her existence. And um, through the 1920s, she operated an antique shop with her daughter. But by 1929, she was really at a, in a, at a, at a deep point in her life. Um, her daughter, she closed up the antique shop. Her daughter got married and weren't doing that any longer. Uh, she had her, some health problems, and her brother had died, her only sibling, and uh, summer of 1929, she was just really in a funk, and she was in the hospital recuperating uh, from a surgical procedure um, and, uh, at Phillips House in Boston. And uh, who should be there at the same time uh, uh, hospitalized uh, recuperating was George Burgess McGrath, who unfortunately had cellulitis in both of his hands, a very, very serious condition. And he was being treated for that. And so they just... You know, they're old friends. They hadn't seen really hung out like that in you know decades, um, but um, uh, they they knew each other um, when she was a teenager, uh, and there she is in middle age, and uh, it's pretty much um, you know her dearest friend at that point the, that she'd known longer than anybody else. And McGrath really seemed to accept Frances uh, in a way that nobody else did. Uh, really, sort of got her. Uh, and appreciated that uh, how smart she was and, and well-read she was. And uh, they, they had all these common interests in music and art and culture and these sorts of things. So um, no doubt they had some fascinating conversations. But they're recuperating their Phillips house. And now McGrath was uh, uh, a pathologist. Uh, and near as I can tell, he was the first pathologist to be appointed as a medical examiner. Um, so he was actually the first forensic pathologist in Boston, 1907. And um, he had this reputation as a crime doctor. Uh, and uh, he was the medical examiner on, um, at the, the 1919 uh, Boston molasses disaster, that horrible thing when the tank ruptured and all these people were killed. Uh, he was the medical examiner uh, at Sacco and Vanzetti, uh, Vanzetti case. Um, he right. investigated... Babe Ruth's first wife, she died under mysterious circumstances. And, and a few really high-profile cases, Florence Small uh, and those sorts of things. Um, and so, um, you know, she was just absolutely fascinated. You know, here, these were conversations of things of substance, you know. I mean, she had been for years going to, you know, social events and decorative arts society and talking about engraving and these sorts of things. And but this was, you know, things that really mattered. And she came to realize that uh, nobody was doing this. There was this yawning need for a, a modern medical model of death investigation and uh, 
nobody was doing it. Nobody was filling that need. Uh, and it really did turn her mind uh, that McGrath really uh, planted the seed in her mind um, that eventually grew into supporting uh, what was then called legal medicine, now called forensic medicine, forensic science. Uh, and she spent the rest of her life uh, towards that purpose to modernize how deaths are sudden and unexpected deaths are, are investigated in the United States. Now, she decides that this George McGrath is is far ahead of his time, and she's very interested, and they have these mutual, respectful conversations with her ideas being expressed. And even though she's not had a high school diploma, he's taking her very, very seriously. What do they? What does she decide to do with her wealth and uh, and her tenacity? What does she endeavor to do on behalf of George McGrath? and this new idea about instituting a Department of Legal Medicine? Well, one thing that, that got her going, one thing she did was she, could, she started reading everything she could get her hands on, and she started reading the literature, what there was on uh, criminal justice um, uh, uh, and um, forensic science, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, sort of getting up to speed. She was a voracious reader. I mean, this woman was amazing. Uh, she was uh, fluent in German, French, um, uh, Latin. Uh, you know, so she was reading uh, uh, texts in their original, you know, these European texts in their uh, original language. Uh, and um, she started out by simply uh, giving um, a uh, money to Harvard to underwrite a professor a professorship um, that she had intended to be for Dr. McGrath, uh, a professor of legal medicine. And so she uh, donated some money um, to, to Harvard. Um, and McGrath, by that point, was uh, in the 60s. Uh, he, unfortunately, had health issues, and his health was declining. And so um, she then... In sitting down with Dr. McGrath, um, and a lot of it was from Francis's own mind, she, she had a real grasp. She had an ability to really integrate this information, and she really understood uh, what, was, what was needed. Um, and that, you know, in order, to, in order to move away from the coroner system to a medical examiner system, you really need, it depends on three fundamental things. And, and the one you need to have, you need to have uh, the manpower. You need to have doctors who are qualified and trained who are there to serve as medical examiners. Uh, you also need laws reformed and changed um, to uh, abolish the coroner system, abolish uh, coroner inquests, implement a, cor a medical examiner system, and places that had a medical examiner system to reform the laws, to give them more autonomy, more authority, get them involved earlier in the process, uh, and these sorts of things. And then the third component was that you need to uh, address the first responders, uh, which in this case are the police officers. Uh, they're the ones who go to death scenes. Uh, sometimes they're the only people who are at death scenes. And so the things that happen um, at the scene can influence everything else that happens. Uh, they don't know, uh, you know, don't move the body. Don't, 
don't pick up the weapon, don't walk through blood, you know, these sorts of things. Uh, but there was no training, and so uh, they're sort of clumsy and, and untrained. And so uh, uh, that was very important to teach police officers and other people who uh, were involved in death investigation uh, these tools of forensic science. So she, you know, wrote down a multiple page, I believe it was like nine pages long, an outline of what a Department of Legal Medicine would do. Um, and really, uh, in those pages, encapsulated uh, an entire uh, medical uh, specialty area of medical practice, uh, forensic medicine, and uh, with training, uh, a, a training program, undergraduate, uh, a series of lectures for undergraduate students to get medical students more familiar with uh, postmortem changes and these sorts of things, and perhaps interest them in the field uh, to work as a medical examiner. Uh, a fellowship uh, program to train people in forensic medicine to work as medical examiners to do research. You need to have a laboratory. You need to have uh, a reference library, which she was working on. Uh, you need to have a, a photography collection for to uh, study from and these sorts of things. So she had this whole vision of what this academic medical department um, should be and what it should do. And then she put her money where her mouth is, and she gave the equivalent of around um, $3.8 million, if you were to adjust it for inflation, um, to do just that and to start this whole program and to start a national search to find somebody to replace George Burgess McGrath and get the whole ball rolling. And so uh, that's what she did, and she spent uh, a great deal of her fortune towards those ends then. Let's use this as an opportunity, Bruce, to stop for a second just to talk about our sponsor, which is Third Love. Third Love uses the measurements of millions of women to design bras with all-day comfort and support. Their perfect fit promise, 60 days to wash it and wear it. If you don't love it, returns are always free. Bras in over 80 sizes, including half cups, all made with signature memory foam. My wife, Lisa, immediately went and took Third Love's Fit Finder quiz. It just took her a minute, and she ordered, as a result, her 24-7 classic T-shirt bra. The bra was very flattering, and she remarked it was very, very comfortable. It fit perfectly, she said. Hands down, the most comfortable bra you'll own. Straps that won't slip and tagless labels, no itching. Lightweight, super-thin memory foam cups mold to your shape. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they are offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash truemurder to find your perfect-fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash truemurder for 15% off today. Now, Bruce, we were talking about this legal medicine department, Department of Legal Medicine at Harvard, her money being influential. Some of the many of the ideas that she wants to institute are being adopted as a result. She doesn't like taking no for an answer. She employs as many people on her behalf to be able to get this done. This is her passion to get this done. Now, you talked about McGrath being in uh, poor health and there needed to be a replacement, who does she find and, and what is the, this person's qualifications in her mind? 
to be able to do this? They, she convinced uh, Harvard to put together a committee to do a search, a nationwide search, uh, for a candidate. And uh, the problem was that there was, well, for one thing, there was nobody else qualified in the United States, and there was no medical school doing that kind of training to produce a person, uh, of, uh, another forensic pathologist. And so what they thought to do is to find some um, very, very bright young pathologist who then they could then send to uh, Europe uh, for a fellowship, for a two-year fellowship at the uh, capitals of forensic science in, in Europe. And uh, they settled on uh, a young doctor at um, the Pathology Institute in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, uh, affiliated with the uh, Case uh, Western University and uh, by the name of Alan Moritz. And uh, he was third, uh, third in line at the Pathology Institute, which had been uh, established by the Rockefeller Foundation as a, as a, as a model of a, of a pathology institute uh, that provided all the hospitals in Cleveland and really served as a model throughout the country is a European model of, a, of an institute. And so um, he had sort of hit a wall with his career there at the, at the Institute and was rather intrigued by uh, the prospect of doing something entirely new in pathology, although he wasn't really familiar with the area uh, that, you know, the, the legal medicine aspects of pathology. Um, he, they, through some negotiations, were able to persuade him to, uh, uproot his family from uh, Cleveland uh, and come to Boston, and um, uh, he immediately set off on uh, a, a fellowship uh, in in uh, Europe. Went to Edinburgh, um, all throughout. He went Paris and um, uh, Egypt, Cairo, um, all over. And um, just on the uh, on the brink of World War II, they had to sort of make a hasty retreat um, when uh, when war broke out. Uh, and then he returned and uh, implemented these these uh, concepts uh, and McGrath's concepts and sort of, you know, put together this curriculum at Harvard and uh, built the program from the ground up and, and began doing these things and uh, training training young doctors uh, in uh, forensic medicine and, uh, and those sorts of things. So uh, Moritz got the whole ball rolling and, and got it going. Now the other ways that that uh, Francis uh, Glessner Lee believed that to to further the interest and the the cause itself of this uh, Department of Legal Medicine, she tried and met with all kinds of people to try to forward her ideas. Um, you talk about meeting uh, the Perry Mason author. You talk about filmmakers. Uh, maybe we're jumping ahead a little bit, but tell us some of the uh, pursuits that she did uh, endeavor to try to further this cause. Well, in the 1930s, she visited J. Edgar Hoover, um, barged her way in, uh, charmed her way in, um, but she got a meeting with Hoover. Now, Hoover is notoriously unkind to the opinion of women. Um, sure. fired all the female uh, uh, special agents and forbid them from serving in that capacity and didn't hold them in particularly high regard, but yet 
you know, this, this elderly uh, wealthy woman came calling and he gave her, you know, had a meeting with her and, and she was trying to convince him. And she thought that the FBI was in a position to be, um, she wanted, she wanted the FBI to do for forensic medicine, what it was doing with fingerprints to have, you know, to be a national resource, uh, sort of like the way the crime lab is now that it would, uh, you know, be able to serve, uh, the police departments throughout the country, uh, and consult on cases and, and those sorts of things. Uh, and, and, um, you know, she pointed out uh, to uh, to Hoover at the time that the FBI really didn't have a lot of strength in legal medicine, forensic medicine, and and it's still true today. Uh, it's really not where their strength is. Um, and so um, he really had he at the time was developing. This was just after the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, so he was working on uh, getting the Cram Lab uh, off the ground and was developing the training center and. I just don't think that he had any interest at all in, in forensic medicine and uh, for whatever reason didn't, but she, you know, she really had, uh, and this is what she wanted to develop at Harvard was to make a, you know, a real national uh, Institute uh, with uh, a nationwide capability uh, and, and help uh, police departments all throughout the country. And, and that sort of thing never, ever has yet to come to be, but uh, she, it was, she was very, very important to, raise public awareness. You know, if people knew, and McGrath had told her this, if people knew the sorts of horrible things that went on uh, after somebody dies, that people would be outraged and shocked and they would demand change. So that was a really big part of her mission was to, uh, she would, you know, she was an elderly woman with health problems, but she was a relentless speaker at clubs all throughout New England and hitting the road and, um, small clubs and societies and uh, trying to convince people and approaching uh, newspaper people to write about it. And um, she thought that Earl Sandy Gardner, uh, you know, he, he, he was at the time the top selling author in the United States. And, you know, right. who, what better person to bring this to the American public? If you could, if you could convince Earl Sandy Gardner, and, you know, present that in one of his books, what that would do for the profession would just be measurable. So, uh, you know, that was part of her mission was to reach, ultimately to reach the public. There was a numerous conversations between Dr. Moritz and, uh, and Lee. And there is talk about the difficulties that, uh, and even Dr. McGrath, George McGrath, had, had said the same things, spells the same sentiment, that there was difficulties. The one major difficulty that he discussed with Francis, what was that and what light bulb, what idea um, was set off in her mind at that time? At that time? Are, are you asking about how to practice observing a crime scene, uh, the, the scenes? Yeah, um, and what that led to, yes. Yeah, you know, it's um, she had she had brought this up with McGrath. It had, the idea had been brought up uh, earlier uh, when uh, she and Moritz uh, they had first uh, considered doing like a two-year program, doing some sort of program in, in police science kind of thing. Uh, didn't get a whole lot of interest in that. Uh, the police officers didn't have the prerequisites for that. 
Um, but they devised a really, really intense week-long seminar in homicide investigation. And um, in developing the curriculum, uh, which has changed very little to this day, uh, it's, it covers uh, all varieties of types of death and suffocation and sharp force injuries and blunt force injuries and suffocation and all these things and drowning, uh, observing evidence and all these things. But, you know, one of the most, since it's for police officers, you know, one of the most important pieces of it is the scene itself. Uh, because you don't want to tamper anything. You don't want to change anything. And, you know, Morris sort of kind of, you know, he said, well, you know, there's, there's never a crime. There's never a crime scene when you need one. And that's also an issue. They, they just don't, you know, it would be great to take everybody to a real crime scene and use that as a practice. You can't do that for a variety of reasons. They don't happen when you need them. You can't just tromp a whole group of people through a crime scene. Uh, so it's just logistically it wouldn't work. So it was a sort of an obvious answer. Well, yeah, I can make little crime scenes. Sure, that's easy. you know I can do that. And so, you know, she got this idea of making these little dioramas, and uh, it's um, basically a set of facts. Um, she made these scenes, and the way she described it, um, they're sort of capturing a moment. It's like he's still framed from a motion picture. Um, something happened in this space, and uh, it's captured at the moment that you, as the investigating officer, arrives at the scene. You open the door, here's what you see. And so it creates a, uh, and it really does something that can't be done by any other medium. You really could not do that by film, by still photos. I mean, you can show a blood stain. Uh, but that's different. I mean, you can photograph a bloodstain and see here, there's a bloodstain. But that's different than looking at a room and finding it with your own eyes. Um, you look for it. And so um, I, I've, I've talked to many, many, many uh, homicide uh, detectives who have been to many crime scenes. Uh, and they say that these dioramas are are they're just about as good as going to a real crime scene. They're so vivified, so detailed, and so realistic. Um, and they do something that you can't do with a real crime scene. You can't go back to a real crime scene and check something, or you have an idea and you've been thinking about it and you want to go see if that was right and these sorts of things. So these are permanent facts, set of facts um, that can be observed from any angle, for as long as you want. Um, you're not told what to look at. Uh, you have to look at everything. It's overwhelming because you, you don't know what you're supposed to look at. So you have to examine every little thing. And so it really was a brilliant, inspired solution to this uh, question of how you practice observing. And so um, she created these dioramas. Um, spent a fortune on them, literally. Each one of them cost roughly what it costs to build a real house. Uh, they were anywhere between three and $6,000 each, um, which in the 1940s, you could easily buy a house for that kind of money. And so um, she built, oh, she finished around 20 of them or so, uh, was working on some others, and 18 of them uh, now survive uh, and are at the medical examiner's office, and they're used for the homicide seminar 
uh, as she designed them and as they were intended. They're as as valuable today and, and as instructive today as they were when they were made in the, in the mid-1940s. Incredible. You talk that uh, Francis Glessner Lee develops a real affinity for police officers, for state patrol officers especially. Uh, she gets even a police radio and starts listening to the conversations, the communications. Tell us a little bit about what this, how she get, got this affinity, what she does with it, and how it applies to this legal medicine department pursuit and training. She, she, she did. She did indeed. She had. She was when she was in her later years. She was losing her sight. She had glaucoma. She was rather isolated up in her state, up in New Hampshire, where she had a radio, and she really lived through that police radio. And she, she listened all the time. So much so that she was able to discern different personalities. She, and she, she got to know the different uh, precincts. Uh, and divisions, and, and, and she really developed in her mind who these people were. And she called them my boys. Um, she, she befriended police officers, um, you know, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Massachusetts, um, all throughout New England, Virginia, Maryland. She was very good friends and with folks in Virginia uh, and uh, Massachusetts and New Hampshire and all throughout New England. And she would lavish them with gifts. She would send baskets of fruit and Christmas and smoked turkeys. And, you know, she called them my boys. And they would correspond with her and tell them the news, the things that are going on, and who had a baby and these sorts of things. And they really, you know, was, they were almost like family. I mean, she had such affection for these, for these people and treated them so well and treated them with respect uh, and that was really important to her that uh, that that police officers, uh, the modern police officer, was no longer this uneducated brute who got the coerced confessions with the third degree, but they were they were educated, they were gentlemen, um, and that uh, they should be treated uh, accordingly. And she had great regard, particularly for um, uh, uh, state police. She felt that state police. Um, they were very well trained, very well disciplined. Um, she didn't care too much for uh, FBI uh, special agents. They were a little stuffy and aloof. Um, she had very little regard for county sheriffs, who she felt were tended to be um, a little less educated uh, and, and less interested in, in improving their professional skills um, and those sorts of things. But state police, uh, they, they were her... Um, she just loved the state police, uh, and they loved her too. I mean, she was really, uh, she was practically motherly to them. She, I mean, she was always Captain Lee, but was always with respect. I mean, they they just they adored her, and, and she treated her uh, the, the police officers very very nicely. She wanted them to have specific training, but realized that that they didn't have uh, they weren't going to be turning into uh, science majors or get a science degree as a result. So what did she have them specifically prepared for with this training? And it's interesting that she had enough respect that she basically forced Harvard to accept these state police, which was beneath them to have these uneducated people in their facility, wasn't it? There was a lot of objection to having 
cops on campus. And, and in fact, they drew the line at city police officers. State police, it was one yeah. thing, uh, but she did not. they did not want Boston cops um, being on, on the Harvard campus. And, and their uh, other faculty members thought it was inappropriate uh, because they were not degree-seeking students. And they, they openly said, they sent memos, why are we doing this? Um, uh, but, um, you know, she really, one of her brilliance, uh, one of, one of her brilliant insights is understanding that, you know, if I'm a police officer, I, I don't need to know how a gas chromatography instrument, I'm talking about in the, in the modern age, I don't really need sure. to know how that instrument works. I need to know what that instrument does. That instrument can tell me a level of, of a substance in the bloodstream. And that's what I need to know that as a result, uh, it's been validated and that is a true result. You know, um, I don't need to know how, um, DNA, I don't need to know how polymerase chain reaction works and how DNA the magic that they do in the test tube. But what I need to know is, you know, this is the, here's what a match means. And that's the significance of it. This is what they're capable of doing. So it's, teaching them the right things, what they need to know. Uh, and even before you teach the police officers, you need to teach their, their bosses. You need to teach the chief of police what a homicide investigator can do so they will be deployed. It was important to her that if they have this training in the homicide seminar, that they not be assigned to a desk. So she always interviewed the chief of police first, and they had to buy into the concept that they're going to dedicate this person to be specially trained in homicide investigation and be used. Once they went through the training, they had a duty, they had an obligation to apply this knowledge. So uh, there are no, no, no lackers, uh, no slackers uh, allowed. And, but, you know, she, she really focused in on what does this person need to know in order to do their job better. You're not making them scientists. That's not the purpose of it. They don't need to be, but it's knowing what they need to know. And that was really, um, you know, how she, she focused on, because doctors, you know, they just want to overwhelm you with facts and, and these sorts of things that you don't need to know all that stuff. Um, so that's what she did was to prepare them with the skills that they needed to do their jobs better. Now this looks incredible and super promising and of course they make inroads in other states with this idea of overturning the coroner system and replacing with a medical examiner system but there is trouble at harvard moritz uh, has an opportunity to go back to where he wants to go ideally and then there's a replacement a dr ford tell us what happens and what direction her dream goes towards eventually. Yeah, Moritz left in uh, 1949 and, um, uh, you know, they're, they're thrown in a, in a quandary again. And, and uh, Moritz actually recommended uh, uh, Ford for the job. Uh, Ford uh, had been, um, he was the medical examiner in the Southern district of Suffolk County um, uh, not McGrath's old job, but the one next door, and uh, sort of a known quantity. And it, initially, I mean, his qualifications um, were beyond question. He was a very good pathologist. He served in um, 
in uh, uh, in the war and had uh, considerable experience with trauma and these sorts of things, which is a large part of uh, forensic pathology. Um, and uh, you know, initially things were were promising, uh, but uh, you know, Ford and and uh, Francis Glessner Lee were on totally different pages in terms of um, what they should be doing. Ford apparently didn't have much interest in. Uh, the day-to-day administration, research, um, you know, the training parts. He wanted to do autopsies and these sorts of things, and but not really, you know, she felt uh, in, in short order that, you know, it was sort of, she, she said it was morbid. You know, it just, they're not doing anything. Uh, but what's more, um, uh, Ford seemed to, I, I guess you might say, you know, sort of a P, uh, PTSD uh, he had some pretty horrible experiences uh, uh, in uh, World War II and uh, was known to have a really sharp temper. Um, and um, she she finally got sick of it. And, you know, that she, she wrote him off and she can't work with him. And uh, it was just, a, you know, she said the department was dying on the vine. It was just dying. And she there was nothing she could do about it. And um, um, uh, ultimately, um, you know, she... Uh, pretty much withdrew from the department except for the, the police uh, homicide seminar. Uh, she limited to uh, her support to that. And ultimately, in the end, when she died in 1962, um, she cut Harvard out of her will. So um, there was that. And uh, Richard Ford, uh, unfortunately, um, ended up uh, taking his own life. And so that was mm-hmm. the end of that. There were things that uh, angered her along the way, but she made compromises. But at some point, the the orders to not incorporate the the McGrath Library into a general library was uh, disobeyed. This was a an incredible collection of documents and rare books, and uh, from a thousand books to three thousand books. And so she felt and and wanted to pull her her funding, but still maintain those seminars, those homicide seminars, right till right till the end, didn't she? That's right. Yes she did. Yep. Um until yep the uh, right up right up uh till months uh months before her death. That's right. Mm-hmm. And uh I, I, I don't know the status of the books at her I don't know um whether they are as she requested all together in one one section together um, she wanted them kept together as a library. She, she, she spent a fortune, but she got some extraordinarily rare documents, and she felt very, very strongly that even if they were subsumed into uh, the medical school library, that they should be together as a collection, as a library. So, MGM wanted to focus make a film and but have Francis as the part of the focus of the film and she did not want that she just wanted to further the cause MGM um, brought in a screenwriter and it's interesting for people my age I guess and we would talk about the one of the stars was Ricardo Montalban uh, in this movie Uh, tell us a little bit about this movie she had an opportunity. She she really seized on it, and this was pure Frances uh, Glesnerly. I mean, this is all her. She took the initiative. Uh, she had a uh, contact uh, with the publishing industry in New York, who introduced her to uh, the head writer at the MGM, 
uh, in Hollywood and sort of pitched the idea, uh, and they were intrigued. This was uh, just after World War II. The, the tastes in entertainment were changing. People didn't want these um, sort of idealized fantasy films. They were looking for something that was a little more realistic, and uh, they were looking for – they wanted to do the sort of semi-documentary style uh, of filmmaking. They are looking for subjects, and she pitched this idea – of the you know focusing on the medical examiner uh and uh it had never been done before and you know they as i really read these internal memos that you know uh, the crime stories or the detective stories those are as old as as, as dirt uh, have been done yeah. every kind of variation of crime stories uh but there had not had not to date had been a movie that focused on uh the medical examiner and a forensic death investigation and so um uh, they drafted up a um, uh, a story um, that actually began uh, the first draft of the treatment or the story of the what, what was then called murder at Harvard, um, focused on uh, Francis Glesner Lee, and, and there's one of the dioramas, and it, uh, uh, it during one of the homicide seminars, and the and the camera sort of zooms in. And the burn cabin, and it would flash back to the Frederick Small uh, murder that um, um, George Burgess McGrath was investigating, and then you know tell sort of flashback and tell the story of the legal medicine. Uh, and uh, she said, you know, literally, she said, "Write me out. I don't want to be. It's not about me. Um, it's about legal medicine. Uh, focus on legal medicine." There had been other stories. There had been. She felt, you know, that she was being used. She was willing to be used. But there were, like, Saturday Evening Post, like, Magazine, um, a bunch of, you know, newspapers. And then they just, they, they pick up on this, this story of this kind of quirky grandma who makes these morbid dollhouses kind of thing. And so, right. you know, she was willing to be used that way if it, Brought, if it was a hook that got somebody's interest to do a story about legal medicine. But she really, you know, that's enough. It's not about me. Uh, it, do a story about legal medicine. And so she was written out. And they, they actually did take a an actual case. Uh, the victim's name was Irene Perry. Um, and it was one of the George, uh, of uh, Alan Moritz's cases. And, and they, uh, they used, uh, it, uh, they fictionalized it. They changed some names to protect the innocent. And they... Uh, it, they worked in forensic anthropology, uh, ballistics, uh, and what was brand new at the time was forensic photography. And Alan Moritz had some familiarity with that. Uh, but it was these ripped from the headlines technology, cutting edge stuff. Uh, it was the first procedural forensic drama. Uh, and so um, they uh, ended up, uh, Harvard's objection, uh, they didn't want uh, the title being murder at Harvard. It was unsavory, and they didn't want to have anything to do with that in the title, so they renamed it Mystery Stream. Uh, and so uh, they, I don't know why they cast Ricardo, uh, Ricardo Monteblan as a, uh, as a Cape Cod sheriff. And he does actually explain his accent in, in, in the movie they had, too. But um, it's, uh, it's, really, it's really pretty cool. Absolutely. Now, with all this hard work, with all of the uh, her inroads into all kinds of areas that would encompass criminal justice, 
uh, with the police and having this crime scene death investigation as the the focus. Um, what were at the time of her death? What were the inroads in what states? How many states? And overall, her huge goal of transforming the U.S. completely from the coroner system to the medical examiner system, how far from that goal did she achieve? Well, the the first medical examiner was in uh, Boston in uh, 1877. She started getting involved in uh, uh, 1929, 1930. By then, if I'm not mistaken... Um, there were really only three metropolitan areas, Boston, New York, and Newark, New Jersey. Um, I believe there may have been in um, some other places. Uh, Maryland came along in 1939. So by 1945, I believe New Hampshire had by then. Um, it was what, at then around 10? Was it around 10? It was not a huge number. Um Today, there's something like, uh, I believe it's 14 states that are medical examiner states, um, roughly half the country, as of today, half the country is on the coroner system. Um, most of the major metropolitan areas, uh, the big cities, tend to have medical examiners, uh, but vast parts of the country. Um, half the population is still on the coroner system. Very, very little has changed in many places. Now, you know, some of the qualifications in many places, um, some are, they do require some training. Um, it, it can be done, uh, it, it, you know, depending on how closely one works with a uh, forensic pathologist. Uh, you have to wonder about what sort of facilities they have access to and those sorts of things. Um, but, um, you know, it, it really has not, uh, uh, come as far as, as it really should. Um, I don't know what to tell you. It's, it's, uh, it's really shocking. People think they watch a TV show like CSI and people think that that's what happens when something, when somebody dies under suspicious or sudden circumstances, they come to expect that. Uh, and the fact is, that doesn't happen. It, it doesn't happen in, in, in most cases. And it, it doesn't, you know, that sort of thing does not exist in, in a lot of the country. Mm -hmm. This legacy, though, um, I have to applaud you in 18 tiny deaths, her entire life, her passion, um, the goals that she had, the ambitious goals, and her fascinating life, her fascinating life has been captured in 18 tiny deaths. I know she had all kinds of honorary positions when she did die. She was friends with many, many people, treated many, many people in law enforcement very well, um, and people that were, went to these seminars were treated incredibly. Um, it is an, a fascinating story, 18 tiny deaths. The untold story of Francis Glessner Lee and the invention of modern forensics. For those people that might want to uh, look at more information, do you have a website or is there a Facebook page for 18 Tiny Deaths? There is, in fact, a Facebook page for 18 Tiny Deaths. Um, they can follow me on, um, uh, on Facebook. 
Um, I'm on Instagram uh, as uh, 18 Tiny Desk. I do have my own website, BruceGoldfarb.com, and I have a um, a uh, calendar of events. Uh, I'll be doing some traveling around and appearing here and there. People are welcome to uh, uh, come out and see me. Um, if you'd like to, uh, uh, I, I've been a lot of interest uh, I've I've gotten from. Um, forensic science, criminal justice classes, those sorts of things, college, universities. Uh, if they're interested in, um, you know, I'd be glad to do presentations, uh, uh, talk with them about that, about Francis or uh, uh, the history uh, of uh, the forensic science. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm around. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been an incredible uh, talk with you about 18 tiny deaths and the life of Francis Glessner Lee. Thank you very much. You have a great evening. Good night. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Good night. Good night.